Oh, good morning. Uh, this is the scripture reference for today is Luke 11, 37 to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, too. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Thank you, Jan. Good morning, church. Uh, one of the greatest gifts to the English-speaking church would be a Jan Buck audio Bible. <laughs> I mean that. I, can, we get, can we make that happen? All right. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Sunday, the Lord's Day, your day. This is a new week, and we've gathered to start this week together in your word. We thank you for where we've seen your provision and justice and mercy this week. And we come to you with our burdens and our failures and our needs and ask that you would renew our spirits today 
whatever experiences we've come with today, Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us as we consider today's scripture passage, that we might know you more intimately and that we might trust you more for whatever this week brings. We ask this in faith, the faith that you supply through your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you know how sometimes when uh, you smell something or taste something or see something, it just brings you back to childhood. Like, like the uh, drinking from a hose, just that's the taste of childhood, right? Or um, whenever I hear a recorder, that's elementary school. And nothing brings me back to that mildewy, wooden smell of the campfire in Neskowin, Oregon at Wynema Christian Camp like the word Pharisee. Uh, and that's because I learned a song at camp where I learned one thing about Pharisees, and that's that Pharisees ain't fair, you see. The same song called I Just Want to Be a Sheep, ba, 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 also taught me that Sadducees are sad, you see, and that hypocrites ain't hip with it. So this is my foundational theological education that brings me all the way here today from Wynema Christian Camp. So, um, it's pretty exciting to be here. Today we're going to talk a lot about Pharisees because Pharisees are very prominent characters, not only in Luke, but this passage particularly. And in the context of Luke's gospel, we've seen Pharisees and their cronies, the lawyers, the scribes, the experts in the law, crop up a few times. In Luke 5, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy after he heals the paralytic and forgives his sins. Here, they also judge Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. In Luke 6, the Pharisees accused Jesus and the disciples of working on the Sabbath by eating grains that they'd plucked from the fields. And they were furious that he had healed a man on the Sabbath. So they started conspiring against him. In chapter 7, verse 30, the Pharisees then reject the baptism of John the Baptist. And Luke notes that this is rejecting the purposes of God. It is at a Pharisee's house that a woman anointed Jesus' feet with alabaster in her tears, and that host Pharisee rejected Jesus as a prophet because if he were a prophet, he would have known that he had touched a woman with her scandalous background. So in Luke's gospel, to this point, the Pharisees represent an outward rejection of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom through him. They aren't fair, you see. Uh, so when Jesus says, you are either for me or against me, these guys are squarely in the against camp. Uh, now, historically, Pharisees have the reputation of being legalists within the Hebrew religion, and that's because they were legalists. So let's take a moment and define legalism, shall we? Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, defines legalism in three ways. The first way is isolating the law of God from the God who created the law. 
where the rules handed down from God become a list that we follow with no further purpose. There's nothing deeper down in the iceberg. It's something you do for the sake of doing them uh, because the religion requires it. Second, separating the letter of the law from the spirit of the law. That's another way that we can be legalists. Uh, this type of legalism obeys the letter but violates the spirit. So a brief illustration of this. Uh, let's say you are traveling and there is a minimum speed limit. Let's say 40 miles an hour. And if you're a legalist, you are never going to go under the minimum speed limit. So you're on the road going 40 and in sweeps a fog bank, there's also, let's say, a wildfire, and maybe, I don't know, some other cataclysmic event um, that maybe you should go slower than 40 or get off the road, or, but if you're a legalist, you're just going to keep bearing along at 40. All right, uh, and then finally, adding our own rules to God's law and treating our own rules as divine, and this is the most common type of of legalism among the Pharisees and maybe in as much as it exists within the church today, also among Christians. Now, Pharisees developed a very intricate system of customs and traditions and rules over 400 years. The Torah, the Mosaic law that we find in the first part of our Bibles contained the Ten Commandments, were the big parts of God's revealed law, plus 603 other laws that govern things like immigration law and public health and property law and ceremonial law concerning the sacrificial system that uh, God instituted. Over time, Pharisees and lawyers created interpretations of these laws in a book called the Mishnah, which is not in the Bible. The Mishnah added thousands of rules to the existing Mosaic law. For instance, the command not to work on the Sabbath in the Mishnah yields 39 different definitions of the word work. And then from there, you get thousands of rules governing those 39 definitions. So, if you are a Pharisee, there are so many numerous rules, including how, to w how far you could walk on the Sabbath, how many letters you could write on the Sabbath without working and violating the Sabbath. In short, keeping the Sabbath took a lot of work on the Sabbath. <laughs> the observance of these extra rules came to be equated with purity and holiness and even righteousness before God. Now, during Jesus' time of Roman occupation of Jerusalem, the Pharisees, while they were a minority party in Hebrew politics, they held great sway and influence over the culture. Uh, people saw them as devout and holy. These were good Jews. Jesus sees them as neither of those things. In fact, Jesus' hard words of rebuke in this passage show how much he hates what the Pharisees embody. Now, hate is a strong word. The title of the sermon is What Jesus Hates. And you think that, if you think that's weird, 
it's probably just because I'm from Oregon. Any other Oregonians out here? I knew it. Just <laughs> we get each other. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's because Jesus does hate things. <laughs> and it's important for us to know that Jesus hates things. And yes, we live in a world where there's so much misplaced evil and unjust hatred that we might want to use caution in using that word. However, for believers, it's very important to know what Jesus hates so that we can be more like Jesus and hate the same things Jesus hates. And if you are not a believer and you're exploring Christianity or questioning Jesus and the claims made about him, seeing what Jesus hates is also instructive because in seeing what he hates, you can better see what he loves. And he loves the world, and you are part of the world that he loves, and so Jesus loves you. So, what does Jesus hate? This is not an exhaustive list, but today's passage shows three categories or three things Jesus hates. If you want to write these, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first thing Jesus hates is the distortions of God's law. The second thing Jesus hates is sin and its effects. And the third thing Jesus hates is that when people place obstacles in the way of knowing God. Jesus hates these things, and so should we. So let's start with the first category that we see in today's passage. Jesus hates the distortions of God's law. I think it's fair to say that we live in an age of distortions. It's dangerous to live in an age of distortions because distortions prevent us from seeing things as they actually are, including reality itself. Recently, I read that there's been a rapid rise in the number of rhinoplasty surgeries among teenage girls. Rhinoplasty is a nose job. And researchers trying to figure out why would this be have found at least one factor that they think is a good candidate. The forward-facing camera on your phone that takes a selfie has a slight fisheye effect to it. And so a selfie will reveal a slightly exaggerated nose, maybe up to 5% larger. What's the effect of that? There are some girls who, and I imagine some boys too, but what I saw is mostly among girls, uh, that are getting surgeries based on a distorted view of their own nose. They're living under the impression that what they see in their selfies are reality and it's driving some of them to modify their body because of it. Now, distortion is not a new thing our passage begins with Jesus being invited to dine with Pharisees. And as a brief, brief aside, most of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees have been pretty public to this point. The, the pattern is they see him do something, they criticize him, and then often he answers them in a way that makes them look kind of stupid. It undermines their authority. But here, they're in a private home, and the Pharisees have him in a place where they might trap him. 
without any public humiliation. This isn't a friendly get-to-know-you meal, okay? This isn't even a, hey, how are we going to kind of go along and get along even though we see things kind of different kind of meal? No, this is a setup. They are after him. And Jesus knows this, and he skips the ceremonial washing of hands common to the Pharisees, and they're astonished. Now, Jesus, perceiving this astonishment, offers a short object lesson that exposes their greed and their wicked hearts. Jesus says that they are like people who wash the outside of their cups, but not the inside of the cups. This illustration is thick with irony. The Pharisees among the Jewish religious groups were the most concerned with purity and cleanliness. They would have rocked COVID-19. They would have been all over it. Now, that's not to say if you were concerned about cleanliness during COVID-19 that you're a Pharisee. I'm not saying that at all. But they would, uh, social distance would have been okay with them. Uh, their favorite police song is Don't Stand So Close to Me. Uh, they, they'd be all over this, okay? Um, so uh, the Mosaic law, the Torah, there are so many laws about cleanliness, but they're mostly related to sanitary cleanliness, and there wasn't a washing of hands law for that. There was a washing of hands law that was for ceremonial purposes before a meal, and this was in the Levitical law, mandatory for the priests, the Levites. But the Pharisees and lawyers, through generations of traditions, distorted this law of ceremonial cleansing before meals to extend to all Jews at a meal. In distorting this law, they were adding to God's law. Now, Jesus' willful refusal to follow their custom was an offense. And to them, it was proof positive that Jesus was not righteous. This distortion presented them from seeing Jesus for who he really was. This interchange, I think, represents three different kinds of distortions that we need to be aware of in our own lives as Christians. How can we distort the law? The first is the distortion of tradition. Now, I want to acknowledge that tradition can be an opportunity to point people to God. I think the church calendar which isn't established in the Bible, is a great example of this. We have Advent, we have the Lenten season, uh, culminating in Easter, and so much more. This is a great tradition. It really helps us to focus in on who Jesus is and what he did for our sakes, and it's a cause for uh, celebration. The problem is that sometimes tradition becomes a means by which we divide those uh, who are on the inside from those who are on the outside. In the church, we can be tempted to judge whether someone is a real Christian by pointing to any number of traditions, from music to clothing to food to drink to habits to attendance at events to the words we use. These traditions can give a false sense of security and self-sufficiency, and they can even lead to corporate or Indi uh, or individual sin against others. When the way we do things becomes the measure of a Christian, we might be in trouble. 
the kingdom of God is vast on earth, and we need to be aware that while we might hold to our traditions as dear, they're not necessarily in God's law. We have to square them against God's law. The second distortion I'm going to call the distortion of the external, and we see a lot of external and internal language in today's passage. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you may have seen the effects of this distortion, maybe in the lives of people you love dearly, maybe in your own life, even now. There are cases where externally a Christian can do all the right things. We can attend church, we give regularly and sacrificially, we can sit on a church committee, we can serve, we can do ministry. We have attentive, engaging children, right? The list goes on. So the assumption might be this person has it all together because of the externals. The blessing of God shines upon him or her, but internally that person's soul might be ravaged. That person can struggle with hidden or secret sin, maybe even sin that he or she is not aware of. Maybe even just the sin of self-sufficiency where they believe that they do have it all together apart from Christ. We need to be aware that these externals uh, might correspond, they might be fruit of uh, a, a Christian faith. But we also need to recognize that sometimes the externals actually take away from the attention to the internals. When Jesus says in verse 41 of our passage, but give alms to those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you, he's addressing this dynamic. He's addressing the dynamic that the Pharisees did everything external to prove themselves righteous and holy, but there was a neglect of the internal. And that dynamic can be a real dynamic. We should pay attention to both. The internal is important. It's our very souls. We need to be careful if external rules become dead dogma instead of living faith. Because here, sin can fester and grow. And Jesus hates seeing this corruption of the soul happen. Earlier in chapter 10, one of the experts in the law asked Jesus what it would be like what would it take to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned the question back to him, and he said correctly, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirmed the truth of the an answer, and to the Pharisees, what did this all mean? It meant following the rules. But rules are not relationships. The command is one that deals with the internal love we have for God and neighbor and how we direct and dedicate all of ourself to that. Finally, there's the distortion of purpose. What is the purpose of God's law? It's an important question that we ask. The Lutheran Church and Reformed theology gives some answers or some ways of thinking about the law, and I'm going to go over these three uses or purposes of the law. These uses are called the civil, the pedagogical, and the normative uses of the law, 
And those are big words. I want to distill those down into some more familiar categories that I find helpful. The first use of God's law is as a curb. Okay, this use of God's law is knowing that there is a just God who has made known his law. And in that, the law restrains evil. The idea that there is a righteous God who has communicated what is right and will punish uh, transgression can curb and restrain evil. The second use of the law is the mirror. Now, God's law shows us our sin and our need for atonement through Christ. Now, Christ, we know, is the perfect man. He perfectly fulfilled God's law. So his life is an embodiment of the fulfillment of God's law. In knowing Christ and seeing Christ and knowing God's law and seeing where we are, we see how short we fall of God's law. This is important because without seeing our own sin and seeing our own transgression, we don't see our need for a Savior. And then finally, the law can be a guide. For us, for, for Christians, knowing God's law is very instructive. It's been revealed. We know God's righteous standard. We know what to strive for, even knowing that in Christ we are called righteous because of his imputed goodness and righteousness to us. In the process of sanctification, the law is our guide to knowing what is right and wrong. Now, I would say that for the Pharisees, these aren't the purposes of God's law. Maybe to curb might be something they would get at. Instead, the Pharisees thought, the law is the thing that justifies me. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, the law cannot justify you. It cannot. We all fall short of the law. The Pharisees picked parts of the law to the neglect of others. None of us, apart from Christ, can love God and neighbor with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We are condemned under that. We can't do it. In Christ, we can, by his spirit. But we are not justified by the law. <clears throat> Instead, the Pharisees are using the law to cover their own sins. They are like Adam and Eve trying to make garments out of fig leaves. Aren't you glad you didn't come to church in a fig leaf? I am. Uh, and you know, it's not one of those go back in your room and try something bigger. This is church. No, no, no. That's too, that's too small as well. Where's that sheepskin I bought you at Kohl's? Uh, it doesn't fit anymore, Mom. <laughs> I just bought it last week. 
No. Our efforts <laughs> to use the law to cover our sin won't work. They don't work. That's not the purpose of the law, okay? And yet, that's what the Pharisees were operating under. Jesus sees their sin, and he sees its effects, and they don't see it. So let's talk about the second thing Jesus hates. Jesus hates sin and its effects. Here we get to the woes. Now, we don't use the word woe very much today in this way. Uh, there are a few reasons why. Very few of us exercise the prophetic gifts very often and enter into prophecy mode in our everyday speech. Woe to you who texts while driving. No, we don't do that, right? Uh, it would be what the teenagers, teenagers call these, these days cringe, okay? And by the way, if you're a teenager in the audience, the fact that I know your cool language makes it no longer cool. That's my superpower. You can't be cool and use cringe as a word anymore. Okay, um, I, I am a, uh, I, I kill coolness. Okay, uh, ever since age 22 and male pattern baldness set in, bam, new superpower. Okay, well, uh, so anyway, all that is to say, in the Old Testament, the prophets used this mode all the time. Uh, to warn Israel of their waywardness. And we see Jesus doing the same here. Now, to be clear, a woe is not uh, a curse. It's not a final judgment. It's a warning. It's an expression of grief, regret, and distress. And Jesus is distressed because he sees the wicked hearts of men and knows where wickedness leads. It, it leads to destruction. Now, you and I can pass by each other at church and not know what's in the heart of the other. As Brian Doyle wrote, in many ways, we live alone in the house of the heart. But Jesus sees it all. We cannot wall up our hearts so much that Jesus cannot see what's inside. Jesus sees the Pharisees' greed and wickedness. In verse 39, he sees their uh, neglect of justice and the love of God in verse 42. And he sees they're doing good for a desire of recognition in verse 43. Jesus sees their sin. And sin means falling short of God's glory, God's righteous standard. Sin is falling short of the law. All of these woes contrast outward appearances of being okay with the internal sin that the Pharisees have. But the Pharisees might not see it, but Jesus sees it all. Another quick illustration. This is a California avocado. It cost me $8.47. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Probably more like $1.79, but you get the point. We've all had this experience where you're waiting for the ripe avocado, and you come up to the avocados. Oh, not quite yet. I'll maybe put it in a brown bag or maybe tomorrow. And you come and you feel the perfect avocado. You get out that knife. You open it up, and what is this gray pockmarked stringy thing I see in here, right? If it's my house, I'm like, well, maybe we can cut out 
throw the avocado away, Scott. Well, maybe a guacamole. No, please throw the avocado away. But avocados are like gold in Southern California, aren't they? Right? So I can look at an avocado and think it's perfect, but until I open it up, I don't know. But Jesus, Jesus would only pick perfect avocados, wouldn't he? Now, this metaphor is going to break down really quickly, so I'm going to move on from it. But the point here is that we outwardly can look okay, uh, but inwardly, uh, it's, it can even, even be hard to locate the sins within ourselves. I wonder if the Pharisees knew they were greedy. Real quick uh, thought experiment. I want you to think of the physical embodiment, real or fictional, of greed. Okay, think, get, get a physical embodiment. What is the personification of greed? Okay, raise your hand if you said Scrooge. Okay, raise your hand if you said Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> All right, good, yes, Scrooge McDuck. All right, or Scrooge, right? These are the embodiments of greed, right? Um, well, these are some pretty, uh, these are some convenient embodiments of greed because, you know, if I'm not Scrooge, this miser who won't give Bob Cratchit a lump of coal for the office, or if I'm not swimming through vaults of gold doubloons, then surely I'm not greedy, right? And these guys, to be sure, they're misers. I mean, look how much money Scrooge McDuck has, and he won't even buy himself pants. Uh, you know, that's miserly, all right? Um, no, but we have this ability to see someone who has more than us. Okay, that Russian oligarch whose yacht the U.S. government just seized, that guy's greedy, right? But not me, or the neighbor down the street who just bought the new boat, or whatever it is. Uh, it's a comparative sin, and it's easy for us to conclude we're not greedy, or I give more than this person gave. So I can't be greedy. It can be hard even to discern in our own hearts our sin. A quick illustration of this is uh, maybe 15 years ago in Grace Group, one of the Grace Group members had built up some savings and he was wondering what he would do with this. Should he invest? Should he save? And another Grace Group member said, I think you need to give a chunk of that money away to the church. And the next week there was an opportunity to do this, and this Grace Group member did that. In fact, uh, Ken Johnson was the one who told the Ken, uh, he used to go to Grace in Arizona now, uh, told this Grace Group member, you need to give that some money to the church. Because he discerned in some way that there might be some sin at the root of this, whether it was a need for financial security or greed, um, and it turned out that that was the right thing to do. Now, I'm not saying financial planning equals greed or anything like that, but what I am saying is we need to be able to open our hearts to each other in some way to be able to think about these things because sin can be something that is so deeply embedded, and sin puts us in bondage. And sin ultimately separates us from each other and creation. And sin can even separate us from God. And Jesus hates that because sin destroys relationships. 
Next, I want to talk about the third thing Jesus hates. And this is that Jesus hates it when people raise obstacles to knowing God. And that's what we see in this passage. One of the lawyers, experts in the law, decides to jump in and he says, Teacher, in saying these, you insult us also. Quick aside, this is a perfect example of what I call the karaoke principle. Just because you can say something doesn't mean you should say something. Right? So Jesus has his whole set of woes for these experts in the laws who are complicit with the Pharisees and creating these burdens for people, uh, making the law of God not this righteous thing, but making it something burdensome. In fact, um, all of these experts in the law, their knowledge is for naught because they're actually keeping people from knowing the law. Uh, to quote my friend Eric Twistleman, they are not laying stepping stones for people they're laying landmines. And uh, God hates that. God hates it when people use religion to separate people from God. Uh, we sang today about God uh, giving us the robe and the ring. We sang to get today songs echoing the prodigal son. God, as we know from a sermon uh, a few weeks ago, wants us to see him as a loving father who welcomes us in. And those who would use religion as an obstacle to God, Jesus says, it's like you're dragging people across unmarked graves. And unmarked graves here were things that would defile a person, and you wouldn't even know you were defiled. To Pharisees, touching a corpse or a grave was great defilement. It made you unclean. It was the least Pharisee thing you could do. And Jesus said, not only are you dragging people across unmarked graves, you are unmarked graves. You're like unmarked graves. Jesus hates it when people use religion to create obstacles that prevent people from knowing God. Now, Jesus' hatred of these things is intense, to say the least. But I don't want you to miss that this type of rebu rebuke has its redemptive purposes. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with the truth about God's law, that the law makes nobody holy, that the law makes nobody righteous. And to come to the gospel, we need to know that about the law. The law has not covered their sins. The best the law can do the best thing the law can do is to show us our need for the atonement that comes from Christ. Paul said the wages of sin is death. Death is the cost for sin. And the only valuable source that could pay for all the sins is God himself because he's the only one who's infinitely valuable. And so when John the Baptist announced the coming of Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God, one of infinite value, the only one who could pay for our sins. And it's not just the sins of, of us, it's the sins of anyone who would come to Christ, anyone. The most well-recognized verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Do you know who Jesus was talking to when he, he told uh, you know who Jesus was talking to when he said John 3.16? A Pharisee. 
Nicodemus came to Jesus secretly at night, face to face. He had the courage to ask, seek, and knock. He had questions, and Jesus answered them. And we don't get words of Nicodemus later in the Bible, but we do get one deed of Nicodemus's. Towards the end of John, during Jesus' burial, after he had been crucified, John reports that Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came this time bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. That's right, a Pharisee did what was externally scandalous, defiling himself by handling a dead body. But internally, he is a Pharisee who understands justice and the love of God. So quickly and, and practically, what does this all mean for us? Well, obviously, we need to be on the alert for legalism. Now, if legalism starts with sin, and I will say the sin of pride at the root of all sin, the antidote to pride is humility. And there is no greater way that I know of generating humility than encountering God's law and God's promises, the gospel. In encountering God's law, we see that we have no moral standing on our own. And in encountering the gospel, we see that Jesus did it all for us. Jesus paid it all. And that produces humility. And humility is the best thing I know of that we can do to prevent legalism among us. And secondly, speaking of humility, I would encourage you to find active ways to humble yourself. One way that you can humble yourself any Sunday is after service to come up and ask for prayer from one of our prayer team members. Prayer is a great act of humility because it's a recognition that you're dependent on God and that you can't accomplish something on your own. To get up and ask for prayer is to get up and say, God, I put, yourself, I put myself in your hands. And then another way would be to nurture friendships with Christians. And I think that we all know the best way to nurture friendships with Christians, and that is to go out for coffee. No, that may be the second best way, but that's the w that one's really popular these days. No, this, th it's to do ministry alongside Christians, right? It's to serve at food bank. It's to serve in youth or children's ministry. It's to hold babies. It's to uh, usher. Shoulder-to-shoulder uh, -shoulder ministry is a great way to make friendships in this church, and we are a church that always needs volunteers. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. And finally, I want to just say that if you're learning about Jesus' uh, kingdom, there may have been some things that I said or others have said as we go through the Gospel of Luke that you want to know more about and you might be confused about or you might even be offended by. And I want to say God's not scared of your questions and neither are we. We want to talk to you. And I'd love to talk to you. 
and I know others would as well. So come up after church and say hi. So brothers and sisters, Jesus hated the distortions of the law, but he satisfied the law by being the sinless man, and he hated and hates the effects of sin, but he paid for the sin of the world with his life. And Jesus hates it when there are obstacles that we create to knowing God. But he became himself the way, the path to know God. He gave his life, not because of what he hates, but because of what he loves. He loves you. Thank you.